News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn on Wednesday afternoon here with Alex Lynn over Zoom in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. In a minute, we're going to be joined by Amy Plitt, formerly of Curbed, who's written and reported on New York City for over a decade. Before that, we're going to go over a year's worth of news this week, a lot of it in the last 24 hours. So we had a tropical storm, trees fell, 911 stopped picking up the line, at least for some people. The health commissioner, Oxiris Barbeau, resigned talking about how deeply disappointed she was in the mayor. The mayor announced her replacement like milliseconds later. Dr. Dave Chokshi, who had been at Health and Hospitals, which took over tracing from the health department. So that's a very encouraging sign before we find out what's happening with schools reopening, which in fact was one of the roots of the fight between Dr. Barbeau and Mayor de Blasio with Barbeau having pressed him to close the schools more quickly than he ended up doing way back in March. Then the mayor, no escape from New York, announced we're going to have checkpoints, a key entrances to the city. Anyone arriving by land or sea from 35 states and Puerto Rico has to uh, fill out a survey and quarantine for 14 days. There's a fine for not quarantining. All of this appears to be, of course, a strong measure of security theater, like temperature checks and lots of other bullshit. Incredibly, the New York Post reported just before de Blasio announced that an email went out to the NYPD's 10,000 civilian employees saying, hey, anyone want to volunteer to uh, register new arrivals? Cool, cool. Meantime, we've got teachers protesting the scheduled planned opening of schools in September by carrying coffins and guillotines as the teachers union has aligned with Governor Andrew Cuomo here to protest against the idea of schools reopening. And as New York City became on Wednesday, the only one of the 10 largest school systems in America that will open in September at all, as Chicago said, nah, we're going to do it remotely. And we had more shootings so far this year than we had in all of last year. In the midst of all this, one of the only New Yorkers who would have been able to explain how those parts fit together, what they mean, and uh, someone who for decades offered sense and perspective, the great newspaper man and journalist Pete Hamill passed away on Wednesday. He was 85 years old. He edited the Daily News, the New York Post, the Village Voice. He wrote novels. He wrote beautifully. Um, and he was somebody who was greatly respected in just about every newsroom he was in and was a uh, generous colleague as well as a uh, tremendously gifted journalist. <sighs> New York will be thinner without him. And <sighs> that feels like a moment of really profound loss. Um, I, I don't have any elegant transition phrase out of that. But in a minute, we're going to welcome Amy Plitt. And later in the episode, you're going to hear from State Senator John Liu, 
who was FAQ's first guest, making a return appearance to talk to Professor Christina Greer. And you're going to hear from City Councilman Justin Brannan about what he saw during the storm from Brooklyn yesterday and why this is still a tale of two cities seven years into de Blasio's New York. Amy, welcome. Let's jump right in. So, Amy, you've spent the last five years looking at the built environment in New York and its infrastructure. And this seemed like a wonderful time to have you on since we've had, what, three building collapses, (laughs) falling on people. Nobody knows what's happening next. And we seem to be at this great stress test for the city we've been in with a ton of complicated unknowns, including all of our employment. Where do you see things going? What are you hearing? And please fill our listeners in and me because I'm dying to know what's happening. I'm just uh, a little terrified these days. It's, I mean, it's hard to say because I think if anybody had tried to predict where we would be now back in April, they would have been completely wrong. Like if you take real estate, for example, in, you know, March or April, people were talking about how like, oh, this isn't going to impact rents. This isn't going to make things cheaper in New York. Things are going to stay the same. I've been talking to a bunch of people this week who are like, there's so many apartments on the market. It's getting cheaper. It's a renter's market. And nobody thought that was going to happen three months ago when we were in the beginning of all this. So I think it's kind of impossible to predict anything at this point, whether we're talking about real estate, whether we're talking about development and what that's going to look like in the next few years, if big projects that were supposed to be getting off the ground this year are going to happen at all or happen this year. Like there are some really big rezoning proposals in the works in Industry City and Gowanus that now we're like, we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't know what anything is going to look like. So I hesitate to try and predict what things are going to look like. But like I lived here during 9-11 and saw the recovery there. I lived here in 2008 and saw the bounce back from the financial crisis. So I'm optimistic that New York will recover, but I just don't know what it's going to look like is the thing. And I don't well, think anybody knows. After 9-11, you remember the, the sense of gloom and will the city ever recover from this? And is this the end of the, uh, the up period? And now at this point in 2020, that was halfway through this almost continuous rise in prices and expense. And after, in, in hindsight, it's just a little blip in this curve. And we don't know if that's going to happen again this time. I hope so. We just don't know. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, we don't even know when a vaccine is going to be coming. So it's just, it's really hard to say what the next year, next five years are going to look like. I can't imagine good, but I am hopeful that things will recover. I think one of the main differences between the pandemic and 9-11 in regard to, you know, real estate and people staying and people going and that kind of stuff is that a lot of people thought that if terrorist attacks continued or things like that, people would be too scared to live in the city and too scared to take the subway. So now what we see is a pandemic where people really ought not be too close together or clustered. And you do have a lot of people continuously for months on end afraid to take the subway. So one of the fears people had post 9-11 is actually happening, that like the subways would no longer be a safe place for, you know, back then we thought it was for a terrorist attack, but now it's because of disease. So I'm very curious to see how that impacts the different neighborhoods. Now you've spent 12 years writing about New York City and what was it, five at Curbed? Yeah, just about five at Curbed. Five at Curbed. And, you know, you wrote a guide to the subways. One of the best things I found about following 
what was going on in the early days of the pandemic was the rush to create a solve for the testing capacity. And that so many people pointed to industry city. And what we saw was like a glimmer of possibly like some kind of like manufacturing hub there as all of these companies like rushed to fill that void. So what is happening with that now? Well, there's the whole proposal to add more commercial space to industry city. It's been around for a long time. There's a consortium of developers who want to basically rezone the area on the waterfront by Bush Terminal and add like 1 million square feet of commercial space and turn it into this big industrial manufacturing commercial hub with maybe hotels, maybe new waterfront parks and things like that. Basically emulating what's going on at the Brooklyn Navy Yard to some degree, but a little bit different. That was moving forward. And then when the pandemic hit, it put all of the land use stuff that's happening in the city on pause. That's all about to get started again. And now Carlos Menchaca, who's the council member for that particular district in Sunset Park, has said he's not going to support it no matter what. And usually if a city council member withdraws their support for a big land use project, that means it's not going to happen. That's just how it's pretty much always functioned in the council. Like there's been exceptions to the rule, but they're very few and far between. So now we don't know. And there's also sort of infighting within the council about this because two other members, Donovan Richards and Richie Torres are like, no, you guys, we got to get this to move forward. And they had a whole editorial in the daily news about it. So there's just all of this stuff happening there. And we're not even at the point where the rezoning process is starting up again, but it's going to probably be a pretty big fight. And I think it's going to I think it's going to really be a test for Corey Johnson of what his priorities are, because the mayor has kind of absolved himself, like just taken himself out of this and is like, oh, um, I think he had an interview on New York one recently where he was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Um, so, yeah, like we don't know. And Industry City, it could be a really great center for manufacturing jobs and commercial space, but there are very real concerns from people in Sunset Park about displacement and gentrification and what's this going to do to the character of the neighborhood and what's this going to do to housing. So it's like everything that happens with land use in New York. There's so many different issues at play here and we just kind of have to wait and see what's going to happen. In any scenario, one of the the optimistic things I thought of when I heard about a manufacturing hub was that in a neighborhood like Sunset Park, is it even possible that the housing would stay at a level that people who worked and supported the industry and industry city could actually afford? It's hard to say. I mean, this is one of the areas with this where I even feel a little bit like... Like, I wonder what it would do to the housing, because the idea would be to add something like 20,000 new jobs into that area, which is great. But I think what longtime residents of the neighborhood are concerned with is that this complex will become more attractive. And if the jobs aren't necessarily like middle class jobs, let's say they're just bringing like tech companies or manufacturing jobs that aren't, you know, focused on the middle class, like what will that do to home prices if suddenly people are flocking into the neighborhood? So It's hard to say because, again, like, we don't know what this would look like. And I think people are just kind of reacting to what has happened with rezonings in other neighborhoods that have been largely residential. Like, people will use Williamsburg as an example where the housing prices went crazy and it didn't actually end up preserving a lot of industrial manufacturing space. So I would like to think it would have a positive effect, especially because we need jobs in the city so desperately now. But yeah, we, it's too early to say, I think. So McCutcheon avoided taking 
either position on this for a long time. And then he came to a position right in the middle of this pandemic that our, our listeners may be familiar with, citing these concerns about gentrification, really at this interesting moment where it seems like maybe those aren't as relevant as they were when tax revenue is about to collapse. And maybe this path we've been on for the last 40 years where, oh God, everything is about to get more expensive, maybe shifting into a new model. Like the timing of this just seemed very interesting. Did he address that at all? Have other council members, when when he explained his decision and why he finally came to it? Not really. I mean, Menchaca's decision was, he said, because of the fears of gentrification and displacement. And he didn't address the fact that you know, we're in this moment where the economy of the city is cratering and things might very well change. Like you said, there may not be that level and acceleration of gentrification that we've seen for the past, you know, decade and change. I think a lot of what he's looking at, and these are concerns that he's had for quite some time. He's brought these up for, you know, years in relation to this rezoning. And I think you also have people now who are looking at the crisis of, people who just can't pay rent and might get evicted and how that is going to play into all of this stuff. But yeah, he, he really didn't address that at all. It was like a, he posted a like three minute statement to Instagram and it was just, I don't support this. You should withdraw your application and that's it. And I think the council members who have come out in support of the rezoning and said, we need to let this continue are the ones who are like looking at the economic picture and seeing it, that it's very bleak and that 20,000 jobs would be a net good. So yeah, I, yeah, that's, I think, where it's all at. You brought this up briefly, but, you know, it's just sort of tradition that the local council member has a veto, but uh, there's nothing past tradition there, which is interesting. So mm-hmm. so it's a tradition like the filibuster people are talking about in Washington or whatever else that could shift. But I wanted to ask you about something more pressing for me and for some of our listeners. Some of them are just not taking the subways right now. Uh, some of them have fled New York City. But you're the co-author of the uh, Subway Adventure Guide. Uh, Mm -hmm. New York City to the end of the line. And for those people who are taking the trains now and enjoying the space, are are there adventures or things that are worth seeing at this point in this fascinating, uh, semi-abandoned, you know, transit city we're in? That is a really good question. I have not been taking my own advice. I've been mostly sticking to my neighborhood and kind of just going on walks around Bed-Stuy. But I, and I think it's hard too, because you don't know where things are going to be open. You don't know if like you're going to be able to get lunch or whatever at a place if you end up in a different neighborhood. You can always do that research ahead of time, of course. This is going to sound really, really ridiculous for somebody who's lived in New York as long as I have. I've been here for 20 years, but I had never been to Greenwood Cemetery before this year. And I went for the first time and was like, wait, this place is great. What have I been doing this whole time? I think going to places outdoors where you're not generally going to find a ton of people anyway. Like Greenwood Cemetery was never all that crowded even before the pandemic happened, which is a shame, but it wasn't. And I think there are more people going now, but it still wasn't very crowded when I went. And I think you can find that in a lot of different places. I haven't been to Shirley Chisholm State Park yet, but I know people who have, and they've said it's fantastic. It's huge. There's just not a ton of people going there. And it's a little bit hard to get to if you're not using a car, but you can get there on public transit. And public transit is actually pretty safe. Like I've taken the subway a handful of times since this all started. And usually people are wearing their masks correctly. There's plenty of space because you don't see a ton of people taking it. And if you're going at off hours that aren't 
our new rush hour, I think you're fine. Buses are free now. Buses are free now. Buses are a little bit dicier than the subway, I would say, because you can't really spread out from people as much. But still, I think it's mostly fine. I've been going to Fort Tilden and uh, not even just for the beach. And it's like got an incredible amount of green space out there to sort of play and stay far away from people. And you can take the a lot of times you need a car or you could take the train and then bus to Jacob Reese and then Mm -hmm. walk over. But it's very, very cool with all these like old buildings. And uh, I think there's a community garden that anyone can apply for a plot in. It's just, it's just pretty great being able to kind of discover the things in the city because everybody's been cooped up and stir crazy. Yeah. And I think the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and the New York Botanical Garden and Wave Hill, I think are all reopening or have reopened recently. And Again, like especially Wave Hill and the New York Botanic Garden, because they're up in the Bronx and a little bit out of the way if you're in, you know, Brooklyn or Queens or whatever. But they're both easily accessible from the subway or Metro North. So that's another thing you could do that would probably be just great. I have a question about reporting. So you really, really seem to be kind of in love with the structural nature of New York City and its geometry and its changing face and changing facades and like the way it moves. And it's something that uh, me and people I grew up with also are constantly fascinated by, you know, you sit on a train and you watch all the buildings move past each other. So what is it about this kind of reporting, the structure of New York, the change of its buildings and things like that, that has so captured your life for the past you know decade well I am a transplant I didn't grow up here so I was one of those people who had that like romantic notion of New York when they were younger and was like I'm gonna move to New York and I'm gonna be a journalist and it's gonna be great and somehow I actually made it work I had worked a time out New York for a long time before I went to Curbed and that was where I sort of started to fall in love with the city and the culture and just you know, begin to understand the fact that it's always changing and you can never actually really know the city. Like there's just so many parts of it that I will never or haven't been to at this point in my life. And again, I've lived here for like 20 years now. And I think that's part of it. There's just so much to do and see. And it's not just like going to restaurants or going to bars or going to the theater or whatever. It's going to places like Fort Tilden or Greenwood Cemetery or just even neighborhoods that you've never been to before. And you're going to discover something interesting. I just, I love that aspect of it, that there's just so much to see, so much history here. I'm a big history nerd. I love the fact that every particular street that you walk down, you're going to find like something interesting there. Like I've, I have been exploring Clinton Hill and Fort Greene more because they're adjacent to where I live in Bed-Stuy and I've just found like amazing houses and, you know, historical plaques that I had never seen before. And it's incredible. I don't know. I think there's just so many layers here and it's, wonderful and interesting and I'm just one of those people who's always been like I love New York and I'm probably going to be here forever so yeah that's a that's a really nice grace note to maybe uh end this on sentence this is one of those conversations that could go on endlessly I'm a a native New Yorker and like a true believer that New York is really a city for transplants that you have to sort of come in and say wow and start figuring it out in a way that's hard to do. And this all seems natural to you, including the really unnatural stuff. Like I didn't know nature really existed until I was about 25. It's like, Oh, that's what people are talking about. (laughs) Yeah. I, I remember you wrote a piece about that when there was some argument going on recently about transplants versus natives. And it's like, you get different perspectives from both ends, but I just, I love it. I love it a lot. 
And uh, just one Greenwood uh, Cemetery footnote, which takes us naturally to Yogi Berra. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too popular. (laughs) (laughs) They actually threatened to shut it down at one point, if I recall, about five weeks ago, because too many people were going there. And then they were like camping with uh, wine and just sort of hanging out in the cemetery and like, wait a minute, which... You know, that, that's a very New York sort of gentrification, that there's not enough space for the dead and there's not enough space for the, for the living to share it with them in the course of all this. Yeah. Like, if you are going to go to these places, just know where you're going first and maybe don't have a picnic in a cemetery. That's not yeah. cool. I, I feel like I had a bunch of picnics in cemeteries, but that was more teenage goth stuff, uh, which <laughs> I, <laughs> I participated in quite a bit. But thank you for coming on. And could you just leave us with letting us know what you're up to, like what we should look to you for? Like your writing is awesome and your coverage of New York is awesome. So what are you doing now? What are you doing next? Uh, I'm still figuring that out. I'm writing for a few different places. I've been writing for The Post, for Brick Underground, Brooklyner. So you can find me there. Um I'm tweeting a lot about street cats and other ridiculous New York ephemera. So you can also find me on Twitter. At Twitter. Like At Twitter, Twitter. With a P. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and taking the time. And hopefully we'll see you out in the world and on the train at some point. As you a- probably will. And thank you so much for having me. This was great. And now Brooklyn Zone City Councilman Justin Brennan talks with Harry Siegel about New York City and what he saw during the storm. Hey, bro. Hey, it's uh, Harry Siegel uh, with FAQ NYC calling for Councilman Brennan. That's me. (laughs) How are you doing? Couldn't be better, bro. Could not be better. It's FAQ NYC. It's Wednesday at noon, the day after Tropical Storm Isaias went through New York City, all five boroughs, in fact. And I'm joined by uh, Councilman Justin Brennan, representing South Brooklyn. Justin, can you just fill us in on what you saw with the uh, storm last night and the impact and uh, how many people are still out of power now and the rest of that? Sure. So we thank you, uh, Harry. We woke up this morning to still about 1,500 customers, as Con Ed calls them, uh, without power. I think the fact that they only refer to them as customers is very telling. And those outages are going to be the most stubborn. Uh, Con Ed did a decent job with getting folks back up. We started out with a little under 10,000 folks out. They got us down to about 1,400, 1,500, but those are going to be the most stubborn ones. So these guys are going on 24 hours now. We're about to hit 24 hours. They've been without power, um, and they're really not giving us any update on when that's going to get done. With all due respect to Westchester, I don't care about Westchester or how long it takes to get their power up or why that matters for getting my constituents back up in southern Brooklyn. But Con Ed is dealing with a, with a whole lot. I think they said something like, this is the second worst outages they've seen, they've had since Hurricane Sandy, which is just completely insane. And I think exposes a lot of the challenges that we're facing here. Um, you know, yesterday, you know, this storm was basically two hours of really bad wind. And if they're telling us that this is the worst they had outages since Hurricane Sandy, then we've got a real problem. So I saw you tweeting 
yesterday that, that there were calls to 911 that just weren't getting answered? Yeah, this was this really this really was scary. So I, I started getting anecdotal calls and emails from constituents saying, you know, we have a we have a tree down, it took down power lines and now the power lines are sparking in the street. So rightfully so, we called 911 and when we called 911 it just rang and rang and rang. And I was like, well, that sounds completely dystopian and insane, but okay. Then I was on the scene of one of these fallen trees and um, a neighbor was calling 911 on her on her speakerphone on her cell phone, and I heard it myself. I mean, she's calling 911, and no one was answering. Um, so we need to figure out why that happened. Um, I don't know if it was a cell a cell phone carrier issue, if it was only folks who were using, you know, Verizon phones, if maybe it had something to do with Verizon being down. But I also know some folks who said they were calling on landlines to 911, and they were getting the same message. So this is, you know, this is scary. Now, I don't know if, if it might have something to do with the fact that more people are home because of COVID, that maybe instead of, you know, one guy calling because a tree is down on his block, you've got the whole block calling 911 at the same time. But even so, I can't imagine that 911 was so inundated yesterday, more so than they were on September 11th or on, on Hurricane Sandy, that yesterday during this tropical storm, they were so inundated and overwhelmed that the system went down. And this is a real problem that we need to get to the bottom of. Um, you know, these are folks who were calling 911 for legitimate emergency situations. Look, I'm sure there were some people calling who maybe should have been triaged and they shouldn't have been calling 911. But regardless, the system has to be set up so that, you know, 8.5 million people can call 911 and, and, you know, it doesn't fall apart. So, you know, when I'm in Manhattan or even fancier Brooklyn, you know, you you don't get the same sort of blackout reports in these circumstances. And it's because, you know, all the power lines are buried where right. I am and where you are. They're, yeah. they're up. So when there's a wind, this becomes a, a big issue. Is this, is this just too much money? Is this always going to be the case or, or is there any chance of that? Change? Well, I mean, th look, you know, the, the tale of two cities is alive and well, and you, and you see it in situations like yesterday where, you had what three outages in all of Manhattan? I mean, you know, so yes, that does have a lot to do with the overhead power lines and the outer boroughs. We still have tons of overhead power lines out here. Uh, when you tell folks who aren't from New York City that we still have overhead power lines, they can't believe it. But these lines are very vulnerable to storms, to extreme weather, to any sort of outdoor event. And you know, in my district, you can basically set your watch to. The power is going to go out at least once per season. It goes out extreme heat. It goes out in extreme cold. So over the years, my predecessors and, and other folks have asked Con Ed, what would it cost to bury these power lines? Because this is just not working. This is, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting the same result. That's exactly what we're doing here. Con Ed tells us it's prohibitively expensive. They're barely willing to even give us a price tag. They just tell us, look, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Just keep it moving. So my question is, at what point do we say, what is that price tag? And how can you tell me that burying the power lines is cost prohibitive, but mass outages and their exponential impact is somehow cost effective? You know, at some point you have to say, look, we need to really explore this issue. Now, I think part of it has to do with Con Ed 
actually doesn't mind having the overhead power lines because it's easier for them to fix, sort of like having an old car versus a new car. When you lift up the hood of an old car, there's three parts, and it's easy to fix. Overhead power lines, they put a guy up on a cherry picker. He does whatever he does, and it's fixed. If you have underground power lines, you've got to dig up the street and yada, yada, yada. But, but the, the, what happens is the overhead power lines go down you know, if, if, if a bird sits on a power line. So when you have extreme weather, like we had yesterday, and like we're going to continue having, this is what happens. And now, you know, 24 hours later, you got hundreds of thousands of people without power. And the, what people don't, you know, the, the fine print is that a lot of it has to do with overhead power lines. So it's a conversation that really needs to happen. We need Con Ed to do a study and really tell us what that price tag would be. And we need to really weigh the cost here because, like I said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, if we had, if the outer boroughs didn't have overhead power lines, you'd have people with lights and air conditioning right now, and you don't because of overhead power lines. So, so I know that, that you introduced last year, you're one of the council members who introduced a bill requiring a five borough resiliency plan. I know you chair yep. the, uh, the committee on resiliency and waterfronts. What are we going to see just in terms of looking into how the storm response went yesterday when we didn't get hit nearly as hard as we could have from the council over the next few months? And how did de Blasio do? I know he was really focusing publicly beforehand on Manhattan here. Yeah, and that's what's so that's what's so insane. One of the reasons why I supported the mayor when he ran for office was because of the tale of two cities because of the fact that he was talking about ending the Manhattan versus everybody else of the Bloomberg era. And really all we've seen is more of the same. The tale of two cities is alive and well. Resiliency doesn't mean tiger dams at South street seaport, you know, eight hours before the storm comes. Resiliency also means properly funding the parks department. So that when a neighbor calls about a tree, it can actually be addressed before the storm, you have to listen to the people who lived on their block for 50 or 60 years. I think they know what they're talking about. And when they call about an issue, it needs to be taken seriously. Now, you got about 10,000 trees that are down today because of this storm. I guarantee that many of those trees, if you look them up in the 311 system, I guarantee that their reports have been made on these trees, that people were concerned about them and nothing was done. Stuff like this also has to be included in the holistic approach to five-borough resiliency. It's not just about fancy engineering studies, going to Holland and figuring out what they're doing right and we're doing wrong. It also has to do with little stuff like this, the hand-to-hand stuff that council members deal with every day with constituent services. That is one of the reasons why today the city is on its knees. So much of the damage that was wrought by this storm could have been prevented if we were better prepared. And all we seem to focus on is recovery. We're not focusing on readiness. You know, so on a day like today, as as the chair of the Waterfront and Resiliency Committee, I don't take any joy in telling anyone I told you so. You know, the council's been sounding the alarm on this for eight years before I was elected. They've been sounding an alarm on this since the day after Hurricane Sandy. Um, But we keep getting more of the same. That gets me to a, a last grim question here, because focus is really important and constituent service, but funds are really important. And we're looking at a moment now where the city doesn't have the money it expected, the state doesn't, the feds don't look like they're really eager to share, 
And I just have a vision of a future of New York. I was thinking about this when we had that run of building collapses where you just have more bricks and more tree branches falling on more New Yorkers' heads because we don't have the capacity to take care of things financially to the extent we have. Like, are we in a position potentially where this is the start of a cycle of decline and things falling from the sky? Look, I'm a New Yorker, born and raised here. I don't root against New York. I'm, I would never bet against New York. But we need to get our act together, and we need to really prioritize and, and triage at a time like this. A lot of this stuff isn't that expensive. Pruning trees and addressing trees is not that expensive. I guarantee that if we spent the last couple of years actually caring about 311 calls about trees, it would be a lot cheaper than what we're dealing with today. But this all comes from the top. When it comes to extreme weather, City Hall is showing us that they only care about Lower Manhattan. Residents who live on the rest of the 520 miles of New York shoreline, primarily low-income communities of color in the outer boroughs, we get thoughts and prayers. That's what we get. Eight years later, they're giving us mops and buckets and rosary beads while South Street Seaport you know, gets tiger dams and the best of the best. The message that they're sending is absolutely wrong. Yes, the city is broke, but the city does have enough money to make sure that trees are not collapsing. And a lot of this stuff really, it's not too late. It can be taken care of, but we need to get our priorities in order. And we need to realize that lower Manhattan, it might be the economic engine of the city for the foreseeable future. But the fuel for that engine is roaring in the outer boroughs. And the outer boroughs have been completely ignored. And today, Manhattan is going on business as usual while the other four boroughs are scrambling to try to get back on their feet. And that's a problem. You know, today I have a question about that. Yes. Is I know that the city reported last month that the uh, executive plan for 2021 chopped most of the uh, tree pruning contracts. So those would have been reduced from 7.2 million to 1.5 million. Um, I'm not sure where that ended up with that money and I'm not sure where you were on that. Is that something you can, uh, you can speak to and thank you again for just taking, taking a few minutes when I know it was a very busy day to go through all this with our listeners. Yeah. Right. Oh, right on. I appreciate it. No, I mean, that's something that we, we've already started. I've already flagged for city hall. I mean, we were, we were fighting those cuts before, you know, a lot of this budget was done with a gun to our head because we didn't want Cuomo to take over after July 1st, you know, the clock struck 12. These are things that need to be fixed, and the city can fix it. The mayor can certainly fix this, and this is something that needs to be addressed because the money that we're spending today to pick trees up off people's houses and clear off streets is going to be infinitely more expensive than just simply funding the Parks Department the way it should be funded. And the cavalier underfunding of the Parks Department has gone on since Bloomberg. De Blasio has just carried it through. The Parks Department, they want to do the right thing. The forestry folks are great, but their hands have been tied. They have no money to do what they do, and people's calls to 311 get ignored because of that. Thank you again for uh, for taking the time. I'm glad to um, finally have you on the uh, podcast, and I hope we'll keep this conversation going. Right on, brother. I appreciate it, Harry. Thank you. Be safe. And last, but certainly not least, here is John Liu, FAQNYC's first and now most recent guest returning to talk with Professor Christina Greer. We miss you, Chrissy. She had to do university business today at three. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I am Christina Greer. It is August 4th. Uh, We're waiting for, I think, a hurricane to hit 
I am on the phone with State Senator John Liu. Hello, Senator. How are you? Professor Greer, how are you? I have no complaints. <laughs> Who would listen? Well, uh, <laughs> we are waiting for this big storm, and I can feel the winds blowing. I know. It's, it's a little the beautiful. The winds are blowing. Right. Not just these physical winds, but the winds of change. Well, the winds of change. What a year. Well, I am looking at a City and State article that came out July 26. It says, John Liu, Iron Man, the trailblazer for Asian Americans, burst back into politics with a wave of progressive support. Can he make both groups happy? So if, for our listeners out there, if you haven't checked out the article, please go to City and State and check out that piece. I wanted to have you on, State Senator, because I, I wanted you to sort of help us break down what's going on in Albany. Obviously, so many New Yorkers are concerned about COVID. They're concerned about unemployment. Uh, they're concerned about yeah. the environment. I mean, we have this sort of confluence of factors that are affecting people's lives. I mean, my colleague and co-host Harry Siegel wrote a great piece for his column last week about, you know, what are parents supposed to do? And this connection between right. the local, state and federal governments and decision making or lack thereof. So I wanted to talk to you about Albany and some of the uncertainty that we have right now with budgeting, with sort of the limbo that you all are in because of relationships in Washington, with cuts, with schools, healthcare, education, like whatever it is. Can you kind of walk us through sort of where you and your colleagues are right now? Okay. Um, well, I would be delighted to give you a clear picture, Dr. Greer. Uh, let me get my charger because this is going to take about five hours. <laughs> have enough battery time for that <laughs> but as we started talking about before 2020 is it's just this kind of year that we're never going to forget this year right and the amount of trauma the amount of tragedy the amount of challenges that is foisted upon us suddenly uh, i mean we're just never going to forget about it and we're still you know people are still dying from covid people are still getting infected although we seem to to be in a much better position in New York and other states and other parts of the country. And we, we all have to do our share to keep that to be the case going forward. Uh, but there's still so much uncertainty. You talked about uh, the uncertainty that parents, especially working parents, have with uh, whether schools are going to be open, reopened or not, or in-class learning, and if it's partial, when and how. So many questions about that. Uh, I, I think the main question right now that we have in Albany is what our fiscal picture is going to look like. We know what it looks like right now, and it, it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture where state government is short close to $15 billion of tax revenue just for the fiscal year that we're in right now. And that's not due to overspending. That is simply due to the fact that the economy has been largely on a pause. People have lost jobs, unfortunately. Businesses have shut down, so our sales tax and income tax revenues are far off. And the same goes for New York City government, where they are also short anywhere from 6 to $9 billion, depending on how and when you count it. Mm -hmm. So we are all around hurting financially. Now, the big question mark that is still on our minds right now, <laughs> it's getting a little bit gloomier, the picture gets a little gloomier, is we're waiting for Washington. We're waiting for Washington to pass, hopefully, uh, what the House of Representatives already passed uh, over a month ago, another round of stimulus funding that will finally provide financial assistance to state and local governments, recognizing that it's not so much a bailout of these 
government, it's really a recognition that state and local governments fund the public sector largely, and the macro economy won't sustain itself without this significant component of the public sector. Mm -hmm. So we need Washington to, to come up. Now, the latest reports are that the Senate the United States Senate can't get its act together because even the Republicans are disagreeing amongst themselves whether there should even be a continuation of the $600 week assistance or there should be any kind of financial assistance to state and local governments, how much perhaps uh, funding could be directed towards education nationally. So these are big financial questions that we don't yet have the answer to. But we know what the consequences will be if we don't get that assistance. Right. If the, the consequences will really hurt people, working people and families where it hurts the most, in schools and in healthcare, and in a number of other areas such as housing, job development, etc. But really, education and healthcare is where it's going to land. Why? Because these are by far the two biggest components of the state budget. So knowing this, like you've laid out this problem from Washington. What are you and your colleagues doing in Albany to try and and serve as like a stopgap before the residents of New York essentially fall off of a proverbial cliff? Well, we've known that this is going to happen or that we're faced with this huge gap for a few months now. And we do have a plan. We have a plan to plug the revenue deficit if need be. Now, again, We really hope that Washington comes through because this is not a crisis of New York's making. This is a a national disaster, a healthcare disaster that the federal government needs to support fiscally. But in the absence of action from Washington or insufficient aid from Washington, we are ready to propose our own package of revenue raisers. The members of the New York State Senate have been meeting over these last several months, coming up with proposals, ways to raise revenue so that we don't have to shut schools, so that we don't have to close hospitals, so that we can continue these vital education and healthcare services that New Yorkers all across the state and especially in New York City need. Uh, These revenue raisers are obviously going to be additional taxes, new taxes. On on people or items? Well, on on people. I mean, at the end of the day, I Items don't pay any taxes, so whether it's right. sales tax on items or the income on people, it's still people who have to pay them. Mm-hmm. Now, the proposals that we come up with are proposals that will really ask the very wealthiest New Yorkers to pay more. The multimillionaires, the billionaires, who quite honestly, many of them have not actually been adversely affected by COVID. And there are plenty of anecdotes where some of these well-off people are even doing better financially under the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. We need these New Yorkers to pay more. Now, we also understand that the governor is entrenched in his, hopefully his rhetoric, but his position that we can't tax billionaires because they'll just leave the state of New York. I mean, that's just ridiculous. There's no evidence based on past history where people will leave just because we're asking them to pay a single percentage more. I mean, it is not a lot, and yet we, we need it. Otherwise, our state becomes unlivable for many different reasons. And that also makes life more difficult in general for the billionaires. So we have 
proposals to increase taxes, income tax, as well as certain other specialty taxes to raise the revenues. Again, if the federal government does not come through fully to plug the deficits so that we can save our schools and save health care. Mm-hmm. So for the remainder of the summer, I mean, it's, time is time is just a concept right now since we're sheltering in place. What would you like to accomplish for the month of August to sort of help give New Yorkers some sort of relief that we know they're experiencing? The month of August, we are prepared to go back to Albany at a moment's notice when it becomes clear that Washington has fallen off its horse and not provided the assistance that we need. Uh, we're prepared to go back to Albany to pass the budget measures, the revenue rate, uh, the revenue measures that will be needed, again, to save our schools and our, our health care and hospitals and, and certain other services for New Yorkers. But we're also, uh, my, you know, my goal, I, I would have to say for many of my colleagues as well, is to ensure that the school semester that starts in just a little bit over a month gets off to a good start. And what that means is that we have clarity as to which families are going to continue uh, 100% remote learning, uh, which families are able to come in or send their kids to in-person school at least some of the time. We know that that's not going to be possible for all of the students, but at least for some of the students on a staggered schedule, who, when, and where how they're going to get there, what kinds of services will be available in the schools. Those are points of clarity that it's it's rather shocking that we still don't have from the Department of Education. And now I, I understand that the Department of Education has been putting fire out after fire, uh, but at this point, with uh, essentially a month to go, parents and families need clarity. I've said many times to the Chancellor that it's just not going to be possible to make everybody happy with the plan because there are some parents and families who feel that it's still unsafe to go back to school. Mm -hmm. There are other families who insist that school in-person learning needs to resume, especially for special needs students. And what we need is to find a balance and just make a decision and say what it is, announce what it is with clarity so that even if parents and families disagree at least they know how to plan for something. Mm-hmm. And that's that's trying to minimize or at least reduce the amount of uncertainty that we talked about before that really has been the biggest challenge of 2020, that we just don't know what the next steps are for sure. But at least with respect to schools, we can bring some clarity and some certainty. And that, in turn, will drive so many other things. Parents will be able to figure out what what they can put together as in terms of their work schedule, Right. Uh, we can start right. getting businesses back open, people going back to work. Things start to get closer to some semblance of normalcy, which cannot happen if schools are remain completely shut. Right. But it also can't happen if people still have high rates of COVID and are federal. You're, you're absolutely right, which is, which is what the governor has been emphasizing that, like, for example, just to put it very simply, if infection rates exceed three percent, there's no way we can open schools or pretty much anything else for that matter. Right. So we have to keep the infection rates down. Uh, the, uh, the state of New York is around one percent. Uh, you know, some days a little higher, some days a little lower, but hovering right around one percent. So if we stay with that, if we continue our social distancing, uh, encouraging all of our friends and neighbors to wear their masks, then we can keep that infection rate down and we can start opening up some parts of schools, 
additional businesses and uh, again get back to some sense of normalcy. So he asked me what my goals are in August. This it is to to really clarify the fiscal picture, even in the absence of Washington action, we can do things on our own here in New York State and Albany, right. and also to, to help smooth the process for uh, certainty with, with respect to the fall semester of the school. Okay, so I've got some lightning round questions for you before I let you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'm the only one, so there's not that much time pressure. Uh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you were a city council member. You were a citywide elected controller. Now you're a state senator. So, and I know that you're also a professor at SEPA at Columbia University. So I'm asking yeah. you really quickly, what grade would you give the mayor of handling the current moment? And what grade would you give the governor? <laughs> okay. Well, I, you know, I, people asked me this uh, several years ago. I didn't want to give a grade, but at this point I would give the mayor a, a big fat F. Okay. He has failed to manage the city. Uh, the police department does not listen to him, and he doesn't know what's going on with our schools. So uh, he gets he gets a big fat F. As far as the governor goes, I think he has managed the crisis relatively well for the last few months. Uh, I think he's starting to take some things for granted, so he's got to be a little bit mindful. And then he's also had had to to you know admit to some of the mistakes that have been made. For example, uh, nursing homes and how they were treating their their residents mm-hmm. and uh, the enormously high rates of death among nursing home residents. I mean, look, it, nobody's perfect. And in this case, thousands of people died. But at some point, you know, you, you got to like admit mistakes and move forward. Admit the mistakes so that they don't happen again. And things get better moving forward. So, uh, oh, so I would give the governor at this point a, a B minus C plus. Okay, let's hope your students at SEPA get better grades than these guys. Okay, so now well, better. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the but mayor's not race. Get it for free. <laughs> right, that's for sure. Um, so the mayor's race. I've got two questions. One, are you interested? Okay. And two, if not, who are you interested in? And my. I didn't, I didn't hear that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, um, don't act like the call dropped, you mean who, <laughs> Senator. <laughs> who, I think is, who I think is, I mean, look. The I, first part of the so question was, are you we, interested in running again? We, we, I am I'm very interested in looking at this race. I mean, look, we've got three top-tier candidates, the, the usual, right? Then COVID hit, and things really got thrown up in the air in uncertainty, and now we have new candidates. Who, uh, you know, I mean, I I have a very high opinion of Milo Wyatt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, that's right. Uh, I, I think I butchered her name. But I think, you know, she's potentially a very appealing candidate to a lot of people. We have candidates who have been talking about running for a couple of years, although they haven't gotten any traction. And now one of them is starting to take a very left-leaning progressive tack. So... Uh, maybe she'll start to make some inroads. Maya, Maya Wiley. You know, I think she's interesting. And I think Eric Scott and Corey should not take anything for granted because we have seen a lot of unpredictable results this year in 2020. Uh, next year, ranked choice voting, ranked choice comes voting. In for the first time. Mm-hmm. 
and we may still have a high level of absentee ballots being cast at that time. Mm -hmm. who, who knows? Okay. Uh, the, the primary is it's 10 months away, 10 and a half months away. So uh, things are getting close. And, and, of course, the November general election, the presidency, what happens with that will will certainly affect mm -hmm. the 2021 mail race. So uh, there there are things in the air, but there are also things that these candidates could be doing to shore up their support, and I would certainly encourage them all to do so. Well, you brought up ranked choice voting, and uh, that will definitely change the way uh, people go to the polls, I mean, if they're educated as to what ranked choice voting is, but it will definitely change the way people will have to campaign uh, and the coalitions they'll have to build across the five boroughs and in different neighborhoods. So what do you think, uh, any of the mayoral candidates, if it's not you, um, what do you think they should be doing or saying to really do some outreach to the Asian-American community in New York City, which is oftentimes ignored uh, when it comes to elections, especially primaries? Well, I think that the candidates have been paying more attention to the Asian community more. Uh, this year, the uh, well, these last couple of years, the Asian American has made has been very, very vocal on issues that they they now care about, uh, and uh, and and the candidates are still listening. I mean, you know, you look at, uh, for example, Eric Adams, uh, his his stance on the admissions for specialized high schools. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, all the major candidates have, have taken positions on that because that's uh, such an emotional issue for Asian Americans. It's, it's not even really an edu educational issue. It's just really an issue of empowerment and the fact that uh, the community feels completely not only neglected, but uh, but in some ways ostracized. Mm -hmm. So uh, so that's, that's going to be part of the candidates' play. Um, they... And, and they're all going to need to do a better job of reaching out uh, to not only the Asian American community, but there are other communities who, which are becoming more of an electoral force in New York, and uh, and have not necessarily had the uh, the, the the right amount of attention mm -hmm. that they should have had from candidates running citywide, as well as for local races like city council. Right. Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we so appreciate Thanks your so service. Much for having me. Uh, hopefully, you'll come back again. You are one of our very, very first guests on FAQ NYC, and we'll never, wait, we'll never forget. Wait, that. I, I recall, I recall Dr. Greer. I was, I am not one of the very first guests on FAQ NYC. I thought, <laughs> I thought I was the first. You were the first guest. On I was FAQ the NYC. first. Yes, that's true. People like to make a big deal of being the first. So I want to say I was the first FAQNYC guest. Well, then I hope that I see that on your resume next time. So it's, you know, uh, <laughs> first Asian American to win citywide election in New York City as the controller, state senator, city council member, and the first guest on FAQNYC in 2018. That, that is absolutely right. <laughs> So we appreciate <laughs> Thank you. you so much. Thank you for fighting yeah. the good fight, and uh, we'll have you back Stay on hopefully Harry soon. And the crew, I shall. And I look forward to seeing all of you in person sometime soon. Take care. Stay safe. You too. Bye bye. F A Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Uh, it's brought to you by Racket Media. 
executive producer Alex Brooklyn. Our hosts are Harry Siegel and Dr. Christina Greer. Every episode is produced, cut, and mixed by the amazing Adam Kamara, who saves our behind every episode that we go over and make a mess of. He cuts it up. He puts it back together. It's amazing. Special thanks to Amy Plitt, John Liu, and Justin Brennan. And you guys will hear us next week about more New York City stuff. Let's have fun. Outros are horrible. Wear a mask. Be safe. Wear, wear a mask. Yeah, be safe. Wear a mask. Bye. Don't be a fool. No, I don't want to do it again. Don't be a sucker. Drink milk. Drink almond milk. Drink butter. Don't be a sucker. Hustle them before they hustle you.